Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour podcast, and your host today is Carla Refold. We are joined by Vicky Gavin. Vicky is the cyber coach at the Cyber Rescue Alliance. She started in business continuity and crisis management back in the 90s and worked for companies like Barclays, The Economist and Kensington Mortgages. She was also Cybersecurity Woman of the Year in 2015 and the Security Serious Unsung Hero Award. She's worked in data protection as well as cybersecurity and as I said, business continuity. Hope you enjoy. Vicky, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited for us to have our discussion. Well, it's lovely to be here, Carla. Um, you know, always a pleasure. So tell us a little bit more about you, where you were born, where you grew up, that sort of thing. Wait, the accent doesn't give me away. <laughs> um, so um, I have lived and worked in the UK for over 20 years now. Um, however, I'm originally from Toronto, Canada. Um, I am currently the cyber coach with the Cyber Rescue Alliance. Uh, I'm a former CISO and former chair of the Women's Security Society. I have had more years experience than I care to admit uh, managing technology, cyber and information security, business continuity and resilience. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and you, uh, you do, you do have a lot of experience and you've seen sort of some really interesting scenarios, but can you tell us about the first time you sort of heard about security and business continuity? Um, well, it was, I guess about 1995. Um, yeah, the terms weren't necessarily the same but they were definitely being talked about. Um, I was working for the Toronto Stock Exchange and Y2K was on the horizon. And so there was a lot of discussion about how to prepare appropriately for that event. I remember everyone preparing for that and how awful we thought it was gonna be. It's a uh, yeah, really interesting time, I guess, to get involved. Well, an interesting time, yes, but, you know, nothing's really changed. It, 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 one might think that somehow things would have evolved over time, but the, the, the basic principles remain the same. Um, and what stood us in good stead um, in, in the 90s is still the backbone of a good, solid business continuity cyber information security program today. Now, I think that's really interesting because a lot of people would say that things have changed, you know, risks have increased. We hear a lot about that. Um, and we've just sort of mentioned around how 
scenarios might might change but your response doesn't have to so can you tell us a little bit more about your your thoughts on that yeah so i mean it i guess people confuse um the list of things that can go wrong with the notion of preparing for it i mean you really really often see that um when people talk about business continuity planning um, they'll often talk about a playbook or um, they've got a variety of names for it, but some kind of uh, plan that involves having specific details of what to do if you have a fire, what to do if you have a flood, what to do if you have flu, what to do if there's an electrical outage and so on and so on and what to do if there's a solar flare or an alien invasion or zombies attack. I mean, pretty soon your business continuity plans become absolutely encyclopedic inside. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, no one uses them because there's, there's too much there. And to top it all off, what actually happens in an incident is never what you were expecting. I mean, it wouldn't be a crisis if everything unfolded as we expected it to. It's only the unknown that creates the crisis. And so we've got to stop thinking that we can somehow plan for every eventuality. Um, One of my favorite, um, and I use that term very loosely, bugbears here, um, is the notion of predicting the next black swan. We see it in the newspapers pretty regularly. You know, what's the next black swan going to be? And black swan events are previously unimagined catastrophic events. If you can't, if you can imagine it, it is not a black swan. So you can't, just just by definition, you can never, ever predict a black swan event. And so you've got to stop trying to come up with that list of all the things that can go wrong. Instead, what what businesses need to focus on and what what technology teams need to focus on is, is having a method for responding to whatever is happening. And when you look at all the myriad things that can go wrong, there are actually only a very limited number of outcomes. Now, either individually or together, um, the outcomes would include your premises not being available. So whether it's a smoking hole in the ground or there's a police cordon around it, the result's the same. You can't use it. your, Your premises are not available. Similarly, your your critical uh, resources, so things like your technology, your systems, your suppliers might not be available. And again, it doesn't really matter why they're not available. They're just not there, Um, not able to process your information or deliver the service that you've contracted. And finally, your people might not be available. And certainly COVID-19 has definitely been a people unavailability issue to a large extent. I mean, there were bits and pieces of the other thrown in, but until we had this pandemic, I don't think anyone was able to truly imagine 
what a pandemic might look and feel like. And the one thing I can guarantee is the next one, and there will be a next one, won't look and feel like this one. So we've got to stop trying to predict the future. You know, none of us have a crystal ball. Um, none of us are clairvoyant. What we need to do is focus on building a capability to respond. And that feels like a really hard message to go and sell to a board. You know, I guess as humans, we naturally want a level of control. And that comes from, you know, imagining, imagining scenarios or making plans. So how do you find getting that message across? You know, I can't tell you every scenario. I don't necessarily have a plan for if this happens. Um, so I've got to say, I'm really not sure how I did it. I still remember um, when I started with The Economist some years ago, um, having a discussion, a discussion with the CEO. Um, and he was explaining to me that I would need a, a plan for um, a fire, a plan for the tube not being available, and so on. He, he listed about 10 or 12 items that I was going to require a plan for. Um, and I gently explained that instead we would be doing um, an, an impact-based plan that we would plan for people not available, premises not available, and resources not available. Um, he, he made some noises that I won't repeat, um, and, but eventually said, well, we hired you because you know what you're doing, so on your head be it. Um, and, and I went off and, and I did what I had every intention of doing. Um, and then I guess it was about 18 months later, I was in his office, don't even remember why, um, and he took a call from someone else while I was there. He had told me to, to sit and wait, but he apologized. He had to take the call. Um, and, and about three or four minutes into the conversation, he said, and I quote, and I don't recall the other gentleman's name, but no, Dave, no, you, you don't want scenario-based plans. You want impact-based plans. You plan for the impact of these things, not the causes. Um, so whatever I did, it convinced him. And I think, I think part of it is having the courage of your convictions. So being able to say, no, this is the right way to do it. Um, and, and I think the other thing that helps to really convince people that it's the right way is by doing crisis exercising. Now, everybody, when you say, okay, crisis exercising or crisis simulation or groans because they're like, oh, I hate role play. Um, unfortunately, it's the only way to really build the the capability to respond to these kinds of events. Because if all you do is tell people what to do, they, they don't internalize it. They, they don't develop that automatic response. But through exercising, which actually gets them doing it, pretending to do it, thinking about situations that they might see, you, you start to actually build what the athletes all call muscle memory where your, your body just takes over and reacts without you having to think about why. Um, and it does it for a, a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, if you're doing it properly, um, you develop a standard 
Um, I always call it a standard meeting agenda because everybody can get behind that. But it, it's basically a way of analyzing what's happening in a crisis. Um, and, and I call my agenda Sadie, um, which is a really convoluted way to pronounce um, a bad spelling um, for situation, impacts, actions, decisions, issues. And those are the five things that crisis leaders need to come together, discuss and do each time they meet during a crisis. So first of all, the situation. The first time you meet, somebody says, what's happening? Um, every other time after that that you meet, you talk about what's changed since the last time we met, because to go back to the beginning and cover everything just becomes pointless. That's the situation. Impacts. How is this affecting us? How is this affecting our competitors, our customers, our, the city we live in? Um, what is the impact that this particular event is having on us? So that situation impact actions. Now actions sound pretty self-explanatory. What actions should we take? Um, D is decisions, and, and again, that sounds self-explanatory. But what's important is that you're not just taking actions and making decisions. You're also reviewing any of the actions and decisions that you've already made. Because the only thing I can guarantee about a crisis, and this is any crisis, is that you will not have as much information as you want and you still have to take action and make decisions. And at least half of the information that you have is incorrect. And you still have to take action and make decisions. Because the only thing you can do wrong in a crisis is to not move forward, to not take action, to not make decisions. And that will ensure that your company fails. Um, there was a a U.S. fighter pilot named John Boyd, who has done a huge amount of work in this space. Um, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but he developed something called the OODA loop. Um, I remember the first time I heard about it, I subtitled it, How to Win the BCM Wars. Um, but the crux of it was that as a fighter pilot back in the Korean War, he had noticed that the Russians had superior planes, but the Americans had a higher kill rate. And to him, it seemed problematic that the, the team that had the better tech wasn't the one with the better outcome. And so he did a lot of, of thinking about this and a lot of studying. And what he realized is that the windscreens on the American planes were bigger. And so they had a better picture of what was going on and could change what they were doing more quickly than their opponents. And by having that better situational awareness and that ability to change course led to a better outcome. Well, in the world of business continuity and crisis response, by reviewing those actions and decisions, what you're doing is in as your situation evolves and you have better awareness, you're able to improve the decisions that you have made and are making. And so knowing 
that you have to make a decision regardless, you also know that you've got a safety net there to help you rethink it. Um, and it's only by actually doing this in, in an exercise that your executive team and I mean, I always take exercising to everybody, not just the executive team. They start to develop the skills to have that situa situational awareness in an actual crisis. The other advantage is it, it gives the team a chance to start to develop a shared risk appetite. I mean, we talk about that a lot. But what does it really mean? What it means is when something goes wrong, everybody has basically the same or very similar idea of how to fix it. Um, and, and so rather than having the discussion about what's right and wrong in the midst of a crisis, you start to develop some, some sense of organizationally what's right and wrong well in advance. So if you don't do crisis exercising, your, your crisis team are at a huge disadvantage and you can always, when you get the opportunity to observe a crisis team in action, identify a team that hasn't had practice because they are quite random in, in the way they're doing things. I mean, it was probably a little nerdy of me, um, but during this crisis, watching uh, the government on TV on a nightly basis, you know, they took a lot of hits from the press that um, they hadn't made the right decision day one, and two weeks later they were coming back and revising decisions. And I'm watching this and saying, yes, you know what you're doing. You've been doing business continuity planning. You've done crisis simulations. You know how to behave to respond appropriately to a crisis. Um, so, so yeah, bit nerdy, but there it is. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, you've obviously seen a lot of these teams come together and we expect, you know, using the government example, we expect that they're calm and they make good decisions and that they work together well. Have you seen people totally fall apart under that pressure? Of course. People are people. I mean, I've totally fallen apart under that kind of pressure. And, you know, different people fall apart at different times. One of the key things that, that you need to make sure is happening during a crisis is that somebody's watching out for mental health. Um, it's a lot of stress, a huge amount of stress. And no matter how good you are at managing stress, you know, you've got to take breaks. You cannot sit on a knife edge forever and expect to to main, re, remain in top condition. Um, you know, I always remember hearing about in 9-11, there was a senior executive at one of the big banks who, when the first plane hit, immediately evacuated, got into his car and drove out into the middle of nowhere um, and bunkered down. And, you know, it happens. That's a normal human reaction to being under attack. And it's one of the reasons why it's really important not to decide in advance who is going to manage a crisis. Because you don't know who's going to be there on the day. Either because, you know, they're off on vacation or in another location or whatever the case may be, or they fall apart. I mean, you, you just don't know until you're in the situation. 
So the more people who practice and and know how you plan to manage through a crisis, the better. Now, you mentioned their mental health, and I feel um, over the last few years, one of the changes that I've seen in the industry is that focus on mental health, but also on people as well. It feels to me like we have a far greater emphasis on the people part of our plans um, than we do even you know the revenue or the business aspects is that a change that you've seen I think it's something that's always been talked about as a necessary I mean certainly for as long as I can remember it's been part of my consideration however I think in the last five to ten years it's become a lot easier to talk about it I mean I think you know, at, at all levels of society, we are talking about mental health now as something that is normal and that everybody at times has mental health issues that they need to deal with. Um, you know, in, in the case of cyber and information security and technology, one of the, one of the characteristics of really good technologists is, is that they tend to be very independent and self-sufficient. Um, and, and you need to do that to be able to, to face up to computers that are failing at a moment's notice and um, people yelling at you, why isn't this working, and so on. But it takes its toll if you're doing it too long. And during a crisis, you've got to make sure that your technology people are taking regular breaks. I mean, I was quite fortunate. I had a, a global team. So I had um, technologists in, in Asia, in the US and in the UK. And I on more than one occasion had been, have been on the phone with somebody saying, no, your shift is over now. I want you to turn your computer off and not do anything until whatever the agreed time was, because I need you fresh to take over when someone else has done as much as they can do. Um, and, and it's difficult for people to accept that you know, they, they don't have to give 110% 24-7. Uh, but if you want to get through a crisis, you've got to make sure people are rotating in and out of those, those frontline roles. And that includes your, your crisis leadership team. You know, your crisis leadership team burn out the same as anybody else. Your senior execs, no matter how great a senior exec is, if they are trying to, to lead a crisis 24-7, 365, they are going to burn out. They need to be able to pass off. And again, it, when, it, if I come back to crisis exercising, by having a standard methodology that everybody is practiced in, it means that a person can hand off with a level of, of certainty that things will continue to be done in the way that they would want them done. So, yeah, it, it's a tough one. <laughs> now, you said earlier that, you know, situations never unfold exactly the way you plan for or the way you think they'll unfold. So is there anything about this pandemic that has surprised you or anything about it that you were expecting um, in how it's all unfolded? So, I mean, we collectively have been planning for pandemic since, oh, jeepers, 
um, early 2000s. I, I don't remember if it was 2002 or 2003 when bird flu or avian flu, as the more correct term is, uh, reared its head. Um, and we made a lot of assumptions about what a flu pandemic would look like. Um, we had assumed that you know one country would be affected at a time. So, and I'm going to just pick country names at random here. Um, as Singapore was hit and, and would be shutting down, um, London and New York would be up and there would be no problem. Um, we, we assumed that um, you know, people would be able to social distance uh, without resorting to working from home. We assumed that we could accommodate them in business <clears throat> sorry, business continuity sites um, and office buildings. Um, and all of these things have proven not to be true. Um, we did anticipate that supply chains might be impacted, but I think pretty much everybody thought, oh, that's a problem that's too hard to solve. We, we'll just put it away for later. Um, and, you know, certainly we have seen the the impact of globalization on our response. And the fact that this pandemic has hit most countries at the same time. I mean, that can be both good and bad. I mean, everybody's economy takes the same hit at the same time. But um, certainly it's a change for planning. We also never planned for, you know, months, if not years, of the pandemic being around. There was also an assumption that it would be in and out in a few weeks. All things that are proving not to be true. What do you think companies will um, need to do differently going forward as part of their plans? Do you think this will impact what they, what they put into those plans? Um, I assume, like every other crisis, there will be at least a short-term uptick in the amount of effort that goes into business continuity planning. Um, because it, I have yet to be in a crisis where people didn't say, these plans aren't good enough. Uh, we can do better. And because it's fresh in everybody's mind how much pain there was, all of a sudden there is... A, a will, a corporate will to spend some money and and do a better job of planning. Um, and a better job of planning usually means bigger, thicker business continuity plans that nobody's going to read. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, it rarely means more crisis exercising, which would actually have some some benefit. Um, but I would assume that people will be looking at their plans uh, following this crisis. What I hope will happen is that people will understand that it, it is that practicing, that, that responding to an evolving situation um, that, that you don't really know what's going to happen, where you don't really know what's going to happen next is what it's important to practice doing in small ways and in big ways. Um, you know, it's, you, you can never prepare too much. If we look at things like the various Olympics that have been held, you know, you can talk to the people who were organizing those and, and they were doing monthly, if not weekly, if not 
daily crisis exercises, role playing, well, what if this went wrong? Or what if that went wrong? Or how would we respond to this? Because it, it again, it's through that practicing, through that talking it through with the other people that are going to be there managing with you, that you agree on, on you know, what are the common principles? What is it that we really want to achieve? What's important to the organization? What's not important? Um, you know, there are so many things. People always assume it's money, but it rarely is. I think that's a really good, uh, good advice in there. Now, one of the things that I wanted to get into with you is around how you've transitioned from business continuity into information security and cyber. There's only a handful of people out there that I would consider to be, you know, an expert in both, and, and you're one of them. So, how did that come about for you? Well, thank you, Carla. I appreciate that. Um, I mean, for me, it was it was a natural transition. Um, you know, it, it's going to sound quite trite, but you cannot have a good cybersecurity program, cybersecurity risk management program, without having a an incident response and and recovery process. I mean, if we look at any of the frameworks, ISO, NIST, et cetera, they all include recovery and response. Um, similarly, you can't possibly recover from any kind of incident without thinking about your information security. I mean, if, if you rely on data to run your organization, and I can't think of an organization that doesn't, if that data doesn't come back, what are you going to do? If that data is damaged, what are you going to do? So you can't have a robust business continuity program if it doesn't consider your secure your information and the security of that information and you can't have a robust security program without thinking about what you're going to do in the event something goes wrong so to me there's there's just no way you can't have these two together i have listened to the argument on multiple occasions which came first security or continuity um it's a little bit like chicken and egg and does it really matter it's these are these are two disciplines that absolutely have to consider each other. Um, they are, however, both different disciplines. There there are different things you need to know to be good at both. And not everybody has the um, the desire to learn multiple disciplines. So, you know, whether a someone learns that stuff themselves or hires a team of people who have those skills, understanding that you need both skill sets doesn't really make a lot of difference. And, um, you know, so I was fortunate on, on my teams that I was able to hire both security and continuity professionals. And because I am a geek, I, you know, I, I dug into the weeds and learned the details of the two. 
but that's just because that's the kind of person I am. I don't think it's important for the leader to necessarily have that level of um, day-to-day information about the disciplines, but the leader does need to have that overarching understanding of how it all hangs together. I have to feel that business continuity people understand that, but cyber people rarely talk to me about continuity. You know, they talk to me about how they're stopping things from happening rather than planning for a what happens when they do. Do you find the same thing? Um, I think it kind of depends on who you talk to and how much experience they have. So, I and this, this is going to sound awful, so apologies in advance. I often compare... Um, technology people, and whether that's security or you know anywhere else in IT, but technology people to the cowboys of a couple hundred years ago. Um, those cowboys, when when they were out on the range, had to depend entirely on themselves. There was no one else that they could count on. They had to be able to to face all comers and win in order to survive. And working in technology is very, very similar to that. I mean, yes, you do have a team, but generally when it starts going wrong, you're all by yourself and everybody is staring down at you and breathing down your throat, throat wanting to know when you're going to fix it. Um, and so it is, I think, a natural... Uh, habit to develop to try to avoid that situation. So to try and keep things from going wrong, because it's rather unpleasant being under that magnifying glass with everybody breathing down your neck. Um, it manifests itself in other ways, too. So if, if you look at the next level up at the management level, what you find is in the in the business at large and particularly on the board, when they talk about risk management, they mean something very different to what technology leaders mean in general. So the technology leader, based on that, you know, fix things to stop people from breathing down my neck, are actually risk averse. To them, there's no such thing as managing a risk, only eliminating it. All risk is bad risk. On the other side, the board has dozens of risk balls in the air. And they have to make choices about which strings to pull, which ones will I mitigate now, which ones can I live with a little longer. Because ultimately, you can never eliminate all of your risk. No one can afford to eliminate all risk. Everybody lives with some of it. And so there's a natural disconnect between the world of technology who try to eliminate risk and the world of business who live to take risks. And, and, and as I say, it, it all stems to this having that crowd of people leaning over you, breathing down your neck as you're desperately trying to fix something. I mean, I, I've been in that hot seat and it is truly unpleasant. Um, so it's, it is very difficult to think about how to better react to that kind of pressure rather than to prevent it. 
And what do you think we're going to see sort of coming down the road for security? Do you, can you see any new risks or any um, a change in the way we might respond to those risks? Uh, so new risks is not a crystal ball gazing game that I play. And, you know, if, if I can think it up, then most likely the criminals thought about it last year. And and I, I don't need to play that game. What I need to do is make sure that I am appropriately monitoring my environment so that I'm, I'm watching for the telltale signs that something is up. And, um, you know, there, there are logical places to watch for those signs and we need to be watching all of them, not some of them. So, you know, things from a defensive position have not really changed. And, and ultimately, the criminals, when they're attacking, while, while they may find a new vulnerability to attack, will ultimately look to attack a vulnerability. So, you know, you need to be looking for your vulnerabilities and, and identifying, you know, is, is there more that you could do? Are there places where people could sneak into your empire and wreak havoc that you wouldn't see them? Um, you know, it's, there's the, the, the cyber essentials and a variety of other programs that, that talk about getting the basics right. And, and it's so true. You know, focus on the basics first. Get those right. Make sure you're doing those things before you start worrying about the fancy bells and whistles around the edges. Um, you know, I, I always remember somebody who had barely installed a firewall talking about how they wanted to start putting in um, some um, some deception technology to, to try and attract criminals. And I'm thinking, are you crazy? Yeah. You know, no, you want to focus on trying to keeping them out first. And only when you've got, you know, several layers around your your crown jewels at that point, then think about, OK, set up some deception technology to, to so that if somebody comes in, you've got a place where you might look for them. Um, so, no, I don't really see a lot of change. I, I think. You have to be constantly watching the horizon to see, you know, what new threats are coming out. Um, who else might be interested in stealing your crown jewels? Um, what new techniques they might be using? But I think ultimately you need to focus on defense. And what about people in the industry? Do you feel that we have a skills gap or do you think that there are enough people with the right skills that businesses are, are generally okay where they are? <laughs> That's a trick question, isn't it, Carla? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I am a bit of a heretic here. I don't think there is a skills gap. I think there are lots and lots of skilled people out there. I think that what we need to do is get better at identifying and hiring talent. Because what we do right now, and, and I'm generalizing wildly, so not everybody does this, but what's causing some of this skills gap is when somebody leaves our teams, we get the CV of the last person who did it. 
And we say, well, you know, this, this must be the set of qualities that I need. So we look to hire somebody like that. Problem number one, the person who's leaving was probably a man. Because, I mean, at the last stats I saw, women were down to 7%. So there's a good chance it's a man. Even at the best numbers, there's a good chance it's probably a man. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and men and women are different. It, it's, you know, it's a fact of life. So automatically, there's a higher likelihood that that set of attributes that you've identified are more likely to describe a man than a woman. That, that goes out there and people look at the description and have to make a choice about whether or not they're going to apply. And I can honestly say that I, I've fallen into the trap myself and I constantly tell other women, you know, when you're looking at that list of skills, if you're comfortable and confident you can do half of them, go for it. Because nobody is going to have that whole skill set or the likelihood is very, very low. And I learned years ago that a lot of the men that I was working with did that very thing. They never worried if there was one or two things on the list that they didn't have. As long as they had a lot of them, they were comfortable with taking a chance. And so, you know, it, it's important that we think about that. Because if 50% of the population is going to look at that list of attributes and say, ooh, I don't have 100% of them, I'm not even applying, you're automatically going to skew, first of all, how many applications you're going to get. And, and secondly, you know, you're, you're not likely to get as many applications that aren't exactly like the last person who did the job. The other thing that's wrong with that is that the last person who did the job also is leaving. And he's probably leaving because he's outgrown the job. And so the skill set that you're looking at is the skill set of the person who's going to want to leave as soon as you hire them, because there's no challenge left in the job for them. So it's really important that the hiring manager actually, instead of using that default set that the other person had, say, hang on, what skills do I actually need? What, what's the minimum requirement? And then you've got a better chance of getting more candidates to apply for the job. Um, once you've got some applications in, then the next challenge is getting through the, the interview stage. Because every single one of us has a bias. And no amount of training is ever going to help us not be biased in some way. I mean, it, it is the nature of being human. Um, what I have always done to help eliminate bias in the selection process is to use interview panels. So I get 
a number of different people from from different areas in the business. So not all technology people or not all continuity people to to interview candidates um, and then take into account what everybody's learned about the candidates to make a decision. I mean, that way, at least then you've got, you know, and I used to get a panel of five, you've got at least five different biases playing into it. So they're likely to cancel each other out. And then the final piece of the puzzle is when you get that person through the door. Because if you don't take the time to onboard them and make them feel part of the team and make them feel like they're making a difference, they're not going to stick around. They're going to go to someone else. And in a highly competitive market like cybersecurity, um, if I'm not happy where I am and somebody's going to pay me 10000 a year more, why wouldn't I leave? So it, it's really important that when you bring new people in, that you, you make them part of the team. And as the leader of that team, I think it's my job to make sure that their job day to day helps them achieve what they want to achieve. Yes, it has to achieve what I want it to achieve too, but if it's not meeting their goals and their objectives, they're not gonna stay. I mean, I think one of the things I am proudest of, there was one organization that I worked for for almost a decade. And in that time, not a single member of my team left. So I built a security team from zero and every single one of them was still there when I left. And the person who succeeded me was the first person I'd hired. Wow, I think that is a good achievement. I'm pretty proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we end each podcast with 10 quick fire questions. So I'm going to need the first answer you have. Are you, uh, are you ready? I'm ready. What turns you on professionally? Learning. What turns you off professionally? Um, challenge, negative challenge. So... Um, if somebody tells me I'm stupid or can't do something. How do you unwind? I, un I unwind in a couple of different ways. I like to read. Um, I, I, I read trashy novels. Um, and, and I like to get together with people. What profession other than your own would you like to try? Um... I am lucky enough that I have tried a number of professions over the year and, and most recently I've been doing a lot in the risk management space. So I, I always figure out I can move wherever I want to move. What activity gives you the most energy? Uh, aqua aerobics. Was not expecting that one. <laughs> well, I like it. Um, who is your biggest inspiration? Uh, my biggest inspiration was my grandfather. My grandfather emigrated to Canada when he was 14 years old um, and had only a grade eight, grade eight education 
and was one of the most intelligent, well-read people I have ever met. Wow. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Resilience. You are at your best when you're doing what? Talking. <laughs> <laughs> if today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? Uh, do what you love and you'll love what you do. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? Um, yeah, welcome. Um, you, you did a great job helping others. Nice. Aqua aerobics totally threw me. Everyone says, uh, you know, I like helping others and that sort of thing. Yeah, I was not expecting that. <laughs> Um, I have an amazing instructor who just makes the whole experience so uplifting. It, it is just a, a fantastic hour spent. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe. And for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.